Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Jusek, and with us today is Tim Cheeseman. Tim is the current and first Poet Laureate of the City of Lima, Ohio. He directs the Learning Center and Writing Lab and advises the literary journal Hog Creek Harden at the Ohio State University, Lima, and directs shows for the theater department. Prior to joining OSU, he taught English and theater and worked as a guidance counselor at Shawnee High School in Lima, Ohio from 1997 to 2018. Cheeseman has a BS from The Ohio State University and an MFA from Bowling Green, and he studied under Allen Ginsberg at the Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado. A former Sacramento Poetry Prize winner and Chiardi Prize finalist, he last placed work in the Reedy Branch Review and Ohio Bards Poetry Anthology. Prior to teaching, he worked as a professional social worker, college professor, naturalist, cook, and janitor. Raised in the predominantly Mennonite town of Plain City, Ohio, Cheeseman resides in Lima, Ohio with his partner, Kelly Army, a mental health therapist and consultant. They have two children, Tristam and Charlie. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Jeremy, thank you. And thank you once again for the invite. Of course. Absolutely. Could you please start us off with a poem? I will. You were nice enough to have read some before before we started this, and you had mentioned a number of my poems are rooted in in growing up in a Mennonite Namish community, so I picked uh, uh, one that that I've always liked that sort of exemplifies that. It's called Joe Hostetler died in June while fixing fences, and it starts with the Amish proverb: "Horses and the love of God work keep us nearer to God. Horses and the love of hard work keep us nearer to God." So many carpenter sons of God, so many women with nervous hands. The gathering crowd is a cloud descended on the lawn, a chorus of white caps peppered with black wide brims. Rose and Eli greet their neighbors on their home's wet steps, eyes still heavy from sitting all night with Grandfather Joe. Rose's dense fingers wring air, kneading invisible dough, stitching idleness to the moist morning. She is thankful for the miracle of each palm she clasps and holds. Inside, the house's partitions are gone, and the quiet cavern welcomes everyone. Suspended boys from tunnels in the mow, women from iron kitchens. Jacob, who eyes the walnut coffin's hinge lid he spent all night sanding. The men's hats come off as one with the preachers like a storm. God needs such men, too. We would not wish him back. The only singing is the praise of approaching hoof claps. The only weeping is the creak of hardwood benches. The only flower, roses, marigolds, bowing among spokes of an old wagon wheel in the yard. The silence is broken only by the huff of horses, the distant thrum of Interstate 71. Two horses wait behind a pitch spring wagon, muscles quivering as if they might leap into flight. Smelling death among the lilacs and fresh hay, the horses twitch with their heart's soft hammer, the flicker of pulse in their necks. The morning sun ices the barn's tin roof, raises ghosts from wet grasses. Mm, excellent. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. You know, I, I I worked at a feed store for a year in Middlefield, and I'm familiar with the Amish, you know, lifestyle. And I think like walking to work and seeing the horses lined up, you know, at the, at the pitch and st- you know, smelling the dew on the grass. I, I'm there with the poem. It, it, it's, it's no, I appreciate it, and it's big in Ohio, of course. I, I grew up outside the town of Plain City, and and most of my neighbors were Utsi and Hostetler and Yoder and 
they were old order Amish. So I'm getting old. So back in the the seventies, of course, um, no indoor plumbing, horse and buggies, the whole nine yards. So uh, hence the name Cheeseman, uh, which is not, my father was Mennonite. I was not raised in the faith in any stretch, but uh, he was Mennonite and it's a very common Mennonite Amish name. I didn't know it was a weird name until I went to Ohio State when I was young. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I appreciate it. I, I, it was certainly an idyllic place to grow up. Um, but then it's easy to get restless. <laughs> oh yeah no. oh, yeah arguments there um when you went so when you went to get your mfa what kind of stuff did you take with you from that childhood and then what types of things subsisted after you finished your education i started my career as a social worker um in columbus uh and it was a wonderful short career it's how i met my wife she's still a mental health therapist um so so I I went to Columbus from Plain City, from a town of, at that point, was about a thousand people um, to the Ohio State University in the 80s, which I think had 75,000 students at that time. So the, and and I'll I'll add to it later, but the entry into poetry was complete accident. Um, uh, And and the MFA in some ways was, was a a real accident, but um, it was difficult to be honest. Uh, I mean, I was younger. I grew up good, solid white trash. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not only first generation college, I'm one of four boys. I'm first generation non-prison. So, uh, my parents were pleased once I made it to like 19 or 20 and didn't go to jail. Um, (laughs) but that the, the arc was weird. Like I stayed, uh, uh, I started my career as a professor at Bowling Green State University right after I I finished my MFA there in the mid nineties and they kept me on. So I was teaching there. And I was just awful at it. I'm a great teacher, but, but, and you know, from, from working in higher ed and I was young, 27, maybe 28, I don't know, but, um, uh, you don't really have a supervisor. Like if someone's not watching what I'm doing, I don't really do much. Uh, so it was a very strange way to try to make a living. I distinctly remember, and this is back in the day before email and stuff right on the edge, but you know, I, I did whatever I wanted. The teaching was okay, but and and no one cared what I did except I started getting these messages in my mailbox that I was going to uh, get in trouble if I didn't start coming to the faculty tea on Fridays. Oh um, no! <laughs> and I didn't know what it was. I finally found someone I trusted and said, "I don't know what the fuck that is." And it was tea, like that you it's drink. Literally drinking. Tea. Yes, and that yeah. was their faculty meeting. They had a, a a faculty meeting, the faculty tea every Friday. So. The adjustment was weird, and and I have a great empathy and sensitivity toward first-generation college students and students that enter those worlds without any context, and it remains sometimes much more difficult than we think, much deeper into people's careers, <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. But yeah. ultimately, the, the work at Bowling Green was wonderful. I studied with Howard McCord, uh, a decent poet up there, and, and uh, Professor Emeritus for a long time. He just passed at, like... 90 years old a, a few months ago. So I don't have any complaints about BG. That's good. It was a um, weird way to make a living. <laughs> it very much is. I can, oh man, I don't know. I Teaching MFA is difficult too, because um, there's, there's a, there's a competition. I think that goes, goes on among a lot of the students and <laughs> 
it's hard. I imagine it must be difficult when you're teaching there not to like inflame that and to still give them the education that they need because the competition is also good for them at the same time. Is that a hard line to walk or is it? It is. And Bowling Green was Bowling Green, uh, which, which people in Ohio are familiar with. I'm sure it's a great teacher college. It's also bigger than people think a lot of times it's 14 to 16,000 students. So I taught poetry there, but I also taught composition, of course, my composition classes had 60 plus students in them. Oh, um, so yeah, that was just terrifying. But, uh, yeah. but the competition was intense back then. I think they gave out 12 fellowships a year. I came, I was out West. I came back to Bowling Green because I got a fellowship. So, I mean, uh, paying for an MFA back then didn't make any sense. So I, I took Bowling Green's offer happily. Um, and so the, the competition was rough and, we absolutely had students that that came in um, every semester. A couple students would come in and wouldn't make it through the first couple semesters workshops. Some of the professors were intense. Some of them are maniacal. You've had a bunch of professors in your life and, you know, would, would lay into them in workshops and whatnot. And we'd always have at least two disappear. Um, sure. And then you mentioned you you had written down one of the questions. I did study with Ginsburg out. West. I started yes. my MFA. I started my MFA at the Naropa Institute. Uh, it's Naropa University now, but it's the only Buddhist college in the Western Hemisphere. Um, Interesting. It was and fun, but it was. Allen Ginsberg yeah. was teaching there. He absolutely was full time. He's the founder of the Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics. Still active out there. Yeah, no shit. It's uh, right. <laughs> I I I, can, I say that in certain circles just to get whatever reaction I can get. Um, <laughs> But my wife, my wife's from Colorado. We were mucking about out there. We found the school accidentally. It still doesn't really publicize much. Um, but I, yeah, so I went to the Kerouac school and, and Alan was a professor and he was my advisor. Um, I was only there for about a year because I ran out of money and, and uh, sundry other things that I ended up, that's how I ended up teaching down in New Mexico for a while. But, uh, but the, the pressure there was intense. I mean, he was not only the, the, they had a big summer program. It was not only Alan, but uh, Gary Snyder, um, uh, Burroughs when he was still alive. Um, wow. So this big summer program um, and the pressure was bizarre, which is, you know, you're very, you're very accurate. I think when you say it's necessary um, in some ways, because if you're going to make any sort of living in the arts, the, the, the competition is real. Um, and, and, and it's palpable, but higher education can be its own wasp nest. I'm sure you're aware of, and can be its own sort of denizen of, uh, of, of weird sort of pressures and anxieties. So, I mean, I see it, I teach at a small regional campus now thrilled with it, but I see it there as well. So. Yeah. Well, what was it like learning under Ginsburg? It was delightful. I don't have anything bad to say. Uh, it's, I was a fan of, of Kerouac when I was in undergrad. So when I found the school, I thought, well, there, there you go. This is what I'll fucking do with my life. Um, so uh, he was older. Um, I was there for about a year. He was an incredibly uh, empathetic and, and, and detailed critic of, of work. Um, he was enthusiastic. If he liked your work, he was pretty rough if he didn't. Um uh, but he was also later in life, so he was a devout Buddhist, and that was a, a big part of being at that university, um, which was also okay. Um, uh, you know, he spent time with us 
after after class we hung out i like i said i disappeared after a year but i saw him somewhere in the mid 90s a couple years before he died at a reading up in ann arbor so um i did reconnect with him one last time uh but he's he's ginsburg and he was then too he's still you know he's famously of course a member of nambla the north american man boy love association um and and oh wow i did not know that absolutely and 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 garnered a great deal of criticism in the 80s uh about it always claimed that it was a, a effort at free speech and and things like that but also i mean he was alan ginsburg he talked freely about uh liking young men and 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 what he had fun doing and it was liberating and exciting because he is who he is but um it could also be sort of complex and weird uh yeah, yeah so i don't know that's that's a lot to that's a lot to digest holy crap sorry yeah it's, no it's, no that's that's it's fascinating it's i just i feel like this is some common knowledge that i just i didn't know <laughs> It's common if you're old enough. I was so happy that you mentioned in your notes Ginsburg because, you know, you and I both, I teach students who are primarily between 18 and 22, regional campus, so some are older, but a lot of them don't know who he is. So, and and in today's world, it's a wonderful jumping off point because we, I with my students, uh, I have lots of conversations about you know, the idea that's that's prevalent in our world tremendously with, with culture is can you love the tale and hate the teller? Um, and just the, the friction and the conflict about art and, and looking at artists and the, what they produce and, and how you you deal with that in your own brain and your own conscience. So, yeah. And, and it, I think it depends the nature of the crime, the extent <laughs> of it. And like context, like I, I mean, like Kevin Spacey turned out to be this predator. And yes. First, he tried to hide behind coming out, which is a terribly, a, a wildly shitty thing to do. I agree but, completely. But then, after trying to shield himself with that, he then like, well, anyway, I don't want to get it. But but going back and watching, say, American Beauty is problematic, given yes. what the movie's about, and so. You know, but it, yeah, I can I can watch a Woody Allen movie and separate myself. So I, I think it, you know, no, it's 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 complicated. But I think it's it's one of those discussions that's essential. And the key word you mentioned for my take on it is context, which we lack so much in today's world. Um, and and you know, that's I've I've I taught high school from the time when there weren't cell phones up until the point where every one of my students had a Scorsesean film camera in their pocket and, and <laughs> the technology was incredible. Mm -hmm. um, and just the evolution of that, I think that, and among many, many other things, but we, we tend to lose sight of context. Um, once everyone has a voice, no one can be heard. And um, I would never stifle anyone's voice, but the noise of culture is, is, is loud. So yeah, and the bear yeah, Spacey was disappointing, <laughs> and I mean that I don't mean that lightly. He's a he was he's an interesting, skilled actor, and his behavior was reprehensible at times. So, yeah, um, you 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 had mentioned you had talked about class, like being in this environment where you're you're missing this tea ceremony and and 
facing possible professional, but definitely like the undertone is there. Even if you don't get a professional warning, it's still like, hey, you're not being buddies with us. Yes. Um, you know, coming from where, you know, a rural area and uh, Mennonite background and being class conscious, how does that affect your work? Like when you go in and write, because I've noticed you write it, you use, I do this. I love doing this where you use people to describe place. Right. And in McDonald's comes to Milford City, your poem, you mentioned Eli, Perry, Joe, like all your poems have these different people. Is that part of like, is there like, because you you describe poverty a lot in your poetry, too. And is that a, a conscious decision on class? And like how much of that is from your theater background, too, which I you set scenes, which this I'm I'm really mixing questions here and being unfair about That's, it. <laughs> I have I've no I I appreciate the the I would be you know I think sometimes we try to uh, uh, pass off our art as something that it's not. Um, I would be lying if I said that I'm not class conscious all the time. As a teacher, as a professor, as a writer, um, I did grow up very poor um grew up in a, a an abusive system and i i think uh my poetry tends to fit into three sort of categories um one category very much is about uh my experiences out west i taught on a native american pueblo and what we would have called a reservation school then and lived out there um in extraordinary poverty <laughs> but um uh, and I have a whole block of poems about that. But then the other block tends to deal with scenes and people, exactly like you said, and I appreciate the nod, that are marginal, that are disenfranchised, that are whatever we want to call it. Um, and and as a social worker and a teacher and a professor, I feel like I've spent most, if not all of my professional career as a voice, both literally and figuratively, for the pieces of that culture that I feel close to. Um, so without question. I think in scenes for a number of reasons, I think. And I also appreciate that that attention. That's a cool. I've always thought of myself as an imagist. If we if we talk formally and you know, when I did my my one thesis, I, I placed myself certainly in that realm. Um, you know, I hate John Ashbery. I don't want to fucking read poems like that. Uh, uh, no offense to anyone, of course, who loves Ashbury, but um I do like uh, Ashbury. That's okay. <laughs> that's, but, that's totally fine. But um, I, I think in scenes, honestly, I think it comes from a couple of things. And this I, this combines a couple of your questions also. I was a journalism major when I entered college. Absolutely thought I'd be back in the 80s. So people that absolutely thought I'd be the next Geraldo Rivera, who was a real journalist back then, um, or Peter Jennings, um, the Canadian who was the American journalist, uh, wrote for the Ohio State newspaper, uh, The Lantern, um, was a stringer for the Columbus Dispatch uh, while I was in undergrad thought that's what I would do and, and sort of realized that um, I wasn't really very good at parts of it. Uh, and, and it was a weird job. I was also, I, I went through rehab in 1992. So I'm recovering um, and, and have been sober for 30 years with. Hey, congratulations. That's, thank you. That is I, 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 a, a uh, very few missteps. One that my kids refer to as the Vicodin summer, which has to do with um, the, the allure of pain pills. But, um, but I, yeah, so I got, I got fired from the stringer job and thought, well, that sucks. Cause that's what I thought I'd do. Mm. 
and I was fortunate to study with some 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 good people in my career. Um, Ginsburg being one of them, of course. But at Ohio State, early I studied with David Satino, um, who was a prominent Ohio poet, was a professor there forever, and I studied with him closely, probably as close as I did anyone. But I took a poetry class from him when I was a kid, twenty maybe twenty one, to fulfill a requirement, and and I, I had always written, but I, we were doing poems. Uh, back in the day of typewriters and handwriting. Um, and I wrote a poem about a cockroach because I lived in a tenement that was full of them. And I misspelled the word vicious and it came out as viscous. And so during the workshop, he went ape shit. Like, this is what poetry is. This is the stretch of vocabulary and words you're supposed to be using. This is fucking wonderful. And And it built a relationship between us, but I thought, I thought, you know, that's, that's, that's pretty cool. I can do this. Um, And so I didn't write much poetry before then, Um, but I studied with him throughout undergrad and even in a couple of grad classes that I did while I was working in Columbus. So I owe a great deal to him. Um, And he was an absolute wonderful teacher and mentor. (laughs) So funny. Oh, well, thank you for making sense of my question because at that the end I was just <laughs> oh yeah it was just a I was handing you a plate of spaghetti and asking you to sort the noodles. <laughs> so okay, so you are the first laureate of Lima, Ohio. How did that get started, and how's the work gone so far? It's gone great. I don't. Um, I I mentioned to you before, and I'll I'll give them props again. There's a community art. Uh, center in Lima called Art Space. They gathered the money. They uh, started the the impetus for the poet laureate thing. I didn't know about it. I have two delightful former students. One's a lawyer now. One's a professor. Um, and I taught high school for twenty two years. Um, and they called me and said, "Hey, cheese, Lima's going to have a poet laureate. You should do this." And <laughs> they nominated me, and I sent my work in. Um, it was after the first phase of the pandemic. So I met with the, the, we have a wonderful new progressive mayor. I met with her in the city council and and they selected me as poet laureate. And then we had the second wave of COVID. So we basically didn't do shit for about six more months. Um, (laughs) but then we got, we got started. I teach a class downtown every week and have for over a year. So it's a community workshop. Um, and that's gone great. We've done, uh, readings both at at there and over at the university and um, where I work and and we just recently did a reading honoring Joe Henderson the jazz legend who is from Lima and uh, the city schools just named their auditorium after him so we did a big reading for a dedication for him um, when I finish off I agreed to it's like a two-year term um, because of the weird delay I agreed to just hang out as poet laureate for an extra year so we're gonna uh, We've we've almost got a good collection of Lima voices together. We'll publish in the fall, so I think we've done okay. I mean, probably. I I I I absolutely. I mean, I'm proud of my writing and what I do. I'm not a self promoter by nature, so I have talked with other poet laureates. Um, one of them in Dallas, of all things, just that I found when I was looking at something, and and Lima will periodically ask me to do things like be in a parade. 
which I can't do. I'm just not a parade person. But <laughs> I did I did read for the mayor's state of the city, which was an honor and was fun. So Excellent. some stuff like that. Yeah, I mean that kind of stuff is important just to get it out there because it's we were talking a bit about this a little bit before we started. Uh, it's hard to build that. It, it's hard to build infrastructure when very. nothing exists. Yeah, it is very. And I am a teacher by nature. I, that's what I've done for most of the past thirty years. So I've really enjoyed um, tying uh, uh, into the university. Um, uh, we have both Rhodes State College and then uh, the Lima branch of the Ohio State University. And so um, tying into there and then teaching downtown has been a, 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 a nice thing. So most of my interactions have been through that. Um, and we have, we have two poetry organizations in town that do um, one does uh, weekly readings at an open mic and one does monthly readings at an open mic at a coffee shop. And so I don't always read, but I go to those and hang out and encourage all the local people to read. And it's fun for the most part. That's good. That's good. Um, do you know when you're done, like how, how the selection process is going to go? The way it went before was that uh, the, the, this is one of the mayor's um, little things. And so I think the mayor, the city council and one of her advisors took the nominations, went through them interviews and then selected someone. Um, I think at the end of this year, a year from now in May, we will ideally take nominations and applications again and I will probably at least make some sort of initial uh, recommendations from those that then the same sort of committee will select. So, yeah. cool. And that's been good about going to all the readings and whatnot, meeting a lot of local writers and and people that are doing so much more than you know. You know, it's 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 yeah. That's that's just it. I mean. I started a workshop in Parma in 2015 and that's been going since then. And, and one thing that I learned was people just, you know, someone will show up and be like, Oh, I didn't know this was here. And, you know, you try to do, you try to advertise and you'll put in the paper every now and then or whatever, but it's, you know, someone will come in and they'll be like, well, I've been writing for 30 years. I've got notebooks full of stuff. Look yeah. at all this stuff. And they'll have great poetry. And it's like, where have you been? <laughs> but I mean, you, I mean, they don't, you get into a routine. You, you're not used to. There's so many people that are talented that are working in their homes that have never been noticed, or someone discouraged them early on, but they still like doing it, so they don't like to show anyone. You know, there's there's just for every one person you meet, there's another dozen of the second group. I agree completely, and this is. But I'll take the opportunity. This is the snottiest ivory tower thing I'll probably say <laughs> during our whole conversation. But um, but the the the. The interesting thing that I've noticed about poetry my whole life, I think, is that nobody reads poetry, but everyone wants to write it and thinks they're a poet. Leonard Nimoy has like, what, two or three books of poetry. Spock has books of poetry, um, which are unreadable <laughs> in case anyone wants to venture into that wormhole. But um, but so the same exact thing happened. I have people that come to my class from two hours away um, and, and it's wonderful. But there there is a part of me that that misses misses is the wrong word there's a part of me that values the, the the idea of the craft of poetry i think poetry is one of those things that is absolutely as much of an art as it is a craft um and that's part of what i enjoy about it part of the connection you made with theater i think and the scenes for me is that's part of it for me um is is crafting that sort of vision and idea um so those can be you know all of my students wrote poetry when i taught high school 
uh, like I said, they come out of the woodwork um, and it's absolutely wonderful. I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, but I think there's also, there's also a different world and a different level of, of craft and, and investment that exists as well, which also I think should be nurtured. Um, yeah. I miss that so much. I miss, that's what I miss about the MFA environment. The most probably is having, being able to sit down with people who are serious about it, who read on a regular basis, and to have each of those people just rip into a poem and be able to spend 20 minutes, half an hour on a single poem, and just, you know, two, three poems per two hours, go through it, really take it apart, really ask good questions, and take your time with it. And that's hard right. in a traditional, like a most community-facing workshops can't really do that because- right. And shouldn't you're trying to serve as too many people? No, I, I I'm on board completely. I tell my my English majors at Ohio State, I tell all the time that you, you know, if you're thinking about grad school, you should get on it. It was the best three years of my life in many ways, and and you know, if you can find some place that'll give you a stipend to hang out for three years and and write poems is a good thing. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of people lack the vocabulary too. I've noticed. Like they don't, there's a lot of people who write poems and they don't, they may employ a metaphor or an image subconsciously, or they'll just write it because they're mimicking other things that they've seen before. Um, but when you, when you try to really, you can't give them too much information because then they overlooked. Yeah. And, you know, that's not what to go back to, to the, the opposite of my ivory tower bullshit is that poetry is a personal art. And, and I, you know, I think it's absolutely our original language as humans. I think the music of voices and, and, you know, of whatnot around the campfire in the cave is our first language. Most of the great works that we, that we embrace still, uh, you know, the King James Bible is all in verse. Shakespeare is all in verse. I mean, I think it's absolutely our original voice that, that, you know, once we tragically develop self-awareness in some fucking cave and, and, We'll deal with that till we're extinct. It's uh, um, the way we express it. So it's also intensely personal. And 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 we have a lot of fun in the workshops I do downtown, the community-based ones. So where where do you think that line is from casual to taking it seriously? Do you think that it's like easy to identify? Do you think it's an attitude? Or do you think because I think some people will can take it seriously, but they don't if you're not willing to do the reading and you're not willing to investigate craft so there's got to be something there's got to be a threshold somewhere yeah no that's a really good question and probably one that 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 is is hard to answer without pissing off both sides um <laughs> for <Probably>. me anyway <laughs> i think i think the line is there i mean i think that that uh uh you know poetry is an art form and i'll compare it to theater in some ways my my we have a, a thriving wonderful community theater in lima um another part like i mentioned the symphony orchestra we have a great community theater i directed the theater department at a, a major high school for 21 years um the 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 also hearkening back my theater department of course was always filled with students it was the only place they found a voice. It was the only place they found belonging. It was the only place they didn't feel like they were disenfranchised and on the fringe. It was a place they were accepted and nurtured. Um, and and that is invaluable. I, I would not trade that for anything. That said, you know, I I did 
you know, I don't know, uh, two shows a year for over 20 years, I'd say five or six of those shows I'd hold up against anything like a college theater or even a professional theater. A good 35 of them were unwatchable. It's amateur theater. It's terrifying. I mean, in, in 21 years, I had a couple set on fire twice. I had, it's just unspeakable what happens. In amateur I want to know about the set fires. <laughs> I became enamored. I became enamored with pyrotechnics. This was before 9-11. And so I realized I could order all of these incredibly complicated things on the internet um, in the early days of the internet. So we did um, Secret Garden. Mind you, the other thing is that I'm going to direct a show this fall at Ohio State. Everyone thinks if you have an MFA, you just do anything. Like, oh, it's an MFA. So do all this stuff. It's like, it's in fucking poetry. I don't like, I can't dance or anything. But anyway, so we did, we did Secret Garden, which is a poet. I had a wonderful time, the Disney show. And, and, you know, it's about cholera. So I decorated this, the, the stage and like empty picture frames and dark sets. And I had this great idea because it's about death in the time of cholera that, that we were going to combust this dollhouse at the beginning. Um, and it got wildly out of hand uh, on one night um, and, and burnt one of, it's also, uh, I owe several families a great debt for not suing me, but um, burnt my stage manager's hand. Um, and then, of course, we did The Wizard of Oz. Every high school does. And I became enamored with it again because I was making the big smoke to make the, the witch disappear. And I caught the witch on fire. So um, we didn't hurt her. But uh, <laughs> but it's, you know, but it's it's amateur. The theater. ironic thing is when you tried to put her out with the water, she melted. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, those are those are that that was uh, you would ask about the theater before it has a huge influence on me. I was a theater minor in undergrad. Um, so I acted all the way through high school and in undergrad, um, always enjoyed it, but I was desperate for a job. Um, I had decided I didn't want to be a professor anymore. So I just quit Bowling Green and was making my girlfriend pay for everything. And, uh, uh, the high school, um, had an English teacher, uh, get pregnant and decide like, I'm not coming back to teach in the middle of the summer. So they called and said, you know, we'll hire you if you take the theater department. And of course I said, yeah, okay. Um, and then I've got, you know, I, I have at least one student I know that, that uh, was up for a Tony award. Um, hey. I have one student that's recording down in Nashville. So, you know, 21 years, there's a handful that are making a living. Um, right. Yeah. In the arts. And that's a cool thing, but more than anything, like I said, it goes back to those. It was also very much a place where I heard cherished and 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 engaged voices that didn't have other places that they felt safe yeah yeah and and what have those what have those places meant for you while you're in them like because because well, you know you, you've spoken a lot about poetry and theater and how they're juxtaposed to you creatively but you've also mentioned all these places so what, what kind of impact have those had on you i think the best poetry is poetry of place I mean, I think when we look at people that influence us, um, uh, even early Ginsburg work, um, the archetypes like Frost, um, I love the poet Ted Kuzer, who I think is a, a former, I think he's a former U.S. laureate or maybe laureate of Nebraska, Iowa, anyway. Um, so I think, I think for me, the, the 
the most significant poetry is poetry of place. Um, you know, my my youngest son, who is 19, uh, won't listen to my playlist in the car when we travel because he insists that all the songs that I that I uh, put on my playlist are about trying to find a home. Um, <laughs> uh, so Peter Gabriel's Salisbury Hill and, and um, oh, songs like that. So I think. I mean, that's a sense that I carry with me that that uh, that I think that sense of place is crucial. And I think that's where we find answers to the the harshest questions about our identity and our 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 futures and our relationships and things like that. Um, my art and the other best thing I mentioned, David Satino, that he said to me when when I was an undergrad in the 80s working with him is uh, um, I worked at a homeless shelter during undergrad and then as a social worker in Columbus until 92. And um, Satino, I worked third shift a lot. He was wonderful because I would show up for his poetry classes and sometimes I would just pass the fuck out. I hadn't slept in like days and he would gently wake me up and and uh, uh, we'd move forward. So for me, and I know this is different with a lot of other poets um, and, and artists, but for me, life is not separated from art. Um, and, and Satino once said to me, he believed that every great poet should be of the world, um, uh, that, that you should work and engage in the world. And I took it seriously, and that's what suited my nature anyway. Um, you know, what's some of my favorites, William Carlos Williams, of course, was a pediatrician his whole life. There's a wonderful short story called The Use of Force about his work as a pediatrician. I wasn't Elliot a banker. I mean, I think, yeah, Kuzer and, and those people. So I think being of the world, for me, is is what makes your art valid and it, it having that though that many experiences and working in so many different capacities because people will treat you very different if you're a college professor versus a janitor and absolutely it's it, it you get to see the same people from different perspectives just by being in those roles and it really in, it helps inform your art because it's it if you do the same thing for 30 years, I think that art can feel kind of one-sided sometimes. No, I agree completely. And and like I said, that's not any, um, you know, there are absolutely artists I like who that's what they do. I mean, they are engaged in the process of creation and, and much more, I think, of the the sort of mental gymnastics of, of very complex art. Um, yeah, and I don't want to make that... I... <laughs> I, I don't want to trivialize or sound like I'm overgeneralizing because people can lead very multifaceted lives by just having yes. one career. Or you can have us even a single perspective to your art, and you know that's a crazy interesting perspective to take. Or you can be have a, have a singular life but a multifaceted perspective to poetry. I, I don't want to <laughs> overgeneralize and make it sound too black and white because that's not how it is. No, that's what that's that's what I meant as well. I was trying to be for me personally, and in my teaching and whatnot. I absolutely think that that you know the first goal in in this awful world is to live a genuine life of of kindness and investment. And then if you're lucky enough to be able to produce art of some kind that other people can engage in, then you should thank something. Um, so yeah. Yeah. What, what do, um, what, what do those two tracks, like when you're feeling a certain way, 
do you do you turn to theater or poetry over the other based on where you're at mentally very much poetry i mean i don't you know i'm also not one of those uh i'm not one of those people that writes every day i i and and i never have been so i i go through intense sort of bursts i turn to it certainly when i'm responding emotionally or internally to the world that i engage in or or people that i remember or or interact with or anything like that um theater not so much i have a weird relationship with theater um i would have never i would have never guessed that i would spend two decades um you know you mentioned we were talking about coaching and athletics i think before we started 21 years as a theater director at a sizable high school two productions a year i worked my ass off for 21 years that's like two sports seasons a year you know sometimes they were wonderful many times they were just what they are you know i had I had casting decisions that sometimes uh, twice made it all the way to the school board with, with parents and people disagreeing with who I'd cast. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> oh yeah. So it's high school. So it's, um, you oh, know, I had, uh, yeah, I had all kinds of just bizarre experiences that I wouldn't trade for anything. Most of the time I just had a ball. It was great fun with those groups of kids. Um, yeah. But if there's this is a weird thing but if there's anything that sometimes i look back as a job it's more theater where i don't think i'm awful at it it was fun um but it's very much more of oh i I sort of accidentally can do that so (laughs) yeah it'll be it'll be fun to direct the the show in a that i'll direct at ohio state will be with student actors that are that are college age so this will be the first time in over two decades that i'm allowed to swear while I direct. And and I know that everyone will say, well, my teachers swore all the time. And I love to swear. But in 22 years of teaching, I never said a swear word in front of class. Um, and, and, uh, uh, and that's not, I'm not obviously a, a Puritan of any kind, but language is power. And so I, I also have sort of deep ingrained theories and ideas about the fact that that language is very much who makes us what we are. We're talking about class. You know, I, I have a, um, a cassette recording that we made somewhere around 1982 or 83. Where we were playing a drinking game. I was good and drunk to about 92. Um, but when you hear me on that recording, I have it hidden away where no one will find it. I, of course, have a deep, like barely understandable Appalachian accent um, that my brothers still have. Uh, and, and, you know, throughout life, I figured it's better to speak differently <laughs> in certain situations. So, uh, so yeah, I take the language thing I'm fascinated by. Um, but yeah, I feel bad for the actors because I'm going to swear a couple times and and take out like 21 years of past frustration. So <laughs> it's going to be like you have Tourette's. <laughs> yes. <laughs> They're going to be so confused and so yeah. uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, that's pretty cool. And, and I guess unless you run monologues or you're a script writer, uh, it's, it's theater has to be more scheduled anyway. You know what I mean? Like you can't just do it whenever you want, unless you have a scene partner that lives with you or something. <laughs> no, no, that's very, no, that's a very good point, Jeremy, because from a, yeah, from the director's standpoint, amateur or professional, it's a, the organization is essential or you just fail. So. Yeah. 
Um, before before we go, what what's what's something that you want people to understand about Parma, and something you want people to understand about you and your work? Oh, good grief! Um, Sorry, I said Parma, Lima. <laughs> they, yeah, they're similar. So I was just going <laughs> to let it go. I couldn't. I wasn't even. I wasn't positive. I think I'm not a native of Lima. Um, I moved here a long time ago. I've, I've lived here 25 years. I raised two children here. Obviously, I've worked here in the community for for a quarter of a century. Um, it's a complex little town. Um, it has a long history of of extraordinary poverty um, and racial tension and violence. Um, we have the police shooting of Tariq or Wilson from back in the 2000s, which is prior to many of the highly publicized ones, um, but was just as devastating. And the community continues to deal with complex um, equality issues and 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 socioeconomic issues, in my opinion. And then the flip side is what I've mentioned. It is an incredibly sort of deceptively vibrant town with a symphony and a thriving um, community theater with uh, three universities um, the, the, that, that contribute a great deal, two major hospitals, one that is building um, huge resources downtown in Lima right now, um, a, a, a full-time art gallery. So there is a, a, a vibrancy and an expression to the town, which is palpable and meaningful. Um, but it's the Rust Belt. I mean, so, you know, we still, and it probably always will be. So, yeah. And what about your work? I think the, the, the poet laureate thing has been, um, I would, I would be lying if I said it, it hasn't been satisfying in a way to identify as a poet for a while. Um, I've written a lot. I've published a lot of single poems. I think I'll probably have a collection here in a year or two because I suddenly have time to do that. I mean, for 22 years working in a high school, I, I hit on the idea. I published like two poems a year because it would help. It renewed my license. Um, they give you points for it. So <laughs> no, it's incredible. So once I realized that I would publish like two poems every year and, and then go about my business. Um, it's interesting. So honestly, I think uh, while it's been satisfying, um, I, I would like people to see that the poetry is absolutely in a, a, a reflection, in my opinion, an artistic complex reflection of a life that has been and is invested in um, community and people. I have spent my entire life helping others quite formally and, and wouldn't have it any other way. Um, so I think more than anything to see a, a body of work that reflects an investment in compassion and, and action in terms of, of interacting with the world, especially the part of the world that that we tend to not like to look at so yeah those are the people that art needs to stand up for anyway yes i hope so yeah. so you were gracious enough to share a large quantity of your work with me and i think that what you shared is embodiment of what you've said thank you okay so could you please read us a second poem let's see I read an Amish poem, so I'll read, oh, you know what I'll do? I'll read, I have a poem, uh, this was published a long time ago, the, the, 
I'll read a poem that sort of embodies the idea that I shit all over a little while ago when I was saying I hate John Ashbery and uh, <laughs> and, and and the isolated world of art. But it's one of my favorite little poems, and and I have always. Uh, uh, one of my jobs was being a naturalist. Um, I grew up in the country and whatnot, and I love bugs. Um, but this is a poem very much that was just an investigation and an exercise for me, but it's called Alfalfa Beetle. One of thousands, she plums tides of alfalfa. An insect lowrider, belly to the ground, pitch shell streaked with green, feelers scraping the craggy dirt. And one morning... While alfalfa bows in the early wind, she'll die after tucking a few larvae by a stone where they will quiver like eyeballs staring into the cloudless sky. The wasp will come like the pause before a twister, the promise of noise. Rice paper wings motionless with flurry will buoy her thread-wasted bulk drunkenly over the flayed tassels. She builds no nest, a living breeze descending only to impregnate the unborn beetles. They are born corpses, growing lighter with each step as the worm wasp churns like lethal worry beneath husks of dark armor. Stealing everything but the body, bloated with hunger, the young beetle will inch up a stem, one humid afternoon like a teeming elevator, reach empty and float dead to the ground, filled with the promise of flight. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Well, thank you. That was a poem I wrote after I had read that wasps actually do that. They impregnate beetles when they're alive, and the larva matures inside the beetle until it destroys it, and then it bursts out of that like some corpse womb. And so I was like, that's incredible. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, that's... Nature is terrifying. I saw a video yes. recently of a parasite pulled out of a, um, a praying mantis, and it was all these long tendril like <laughs> things it, it was creepy and and, and and it's amazing how much anyway i'm i'm, I'm i don't want to gross out <laughs> but <laughs> it, it was fascinating to me but it was also very disgusting <laughs> yes no i find those things fascinating so okay this has been poetry spotlight a production of the ohio poetry association Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook or at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. And Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you.